0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Tonight I have the privilege of concluding our sermon series on the book of Revelation. So uh, I'm sorry to disappoint anyone who is expecting maybe a traditional Christmas Advent sermon. This is going to be a little different because we're going to be talking about Christ's second Advent, not so much his first. But nevertheless, it is God's word. So would you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. All the way in the back of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22, we will be reading verses 6 through 21. Verses 6 through 21. Now, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, is a very special and important passage. In the sense that these are God's final words to his people. After this passage, there is no need for further revelation. With these words, God has said all he has needed to say to us until Christ returns. So with that in mind, let us listen carefully as we hear God's final words being read aloud. And let us take them to heart. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil-doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, what I hope stood out to you the most in this passage that we just read, in these final words... To us from God is that Jesus tells us three different times that He is coming back. He doesn't just tell us once or twice, instead, He makes it a point to tell us three times that He's going to come back. He does so first in verse 7, second in verse 12, and third in verse 20. This means that Jesus wants his people to be absolutely certain of his return. In other words, he doesn't want any of us to have any doubts whatsoever about his coming again. As Christians, then, our great expectation should be that Christ will one day return. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that at this very moment, Jesus is at God the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, interceding for all of us who have put our faith in him. But one day, Jesus will return to earth in the full power of his kingdom to judge the living and the dead. And it's this great expectation that should govern our lives. The thought of Jesus coming back again should control how we think, how we behave, and how we talk. This great expectation should determine how we spend our time and the people and the things that we invest ourselves in. For example, the Christmas season is now upon us. Just look around the room. As a result, we all find ourselves very busy getting ready for Christmas Day. We're sending out Christmas cards to family and friends. We're decorating our house with Christmas trees and manger scenes. The smell of Christmas cookies is in the air. We're listening to an absurd amount of Christmas music. We're creating wish lists and we're going out to stores and getting online to do our holiday shopping. We're wrapping up gifts and going to Christmas concerts. And we're being extra nice to our loved ones and strangers alike. And we're doing all this in the expectation that Christmas morning will soon be upon us. Now the point that I'm trying to make is that it's quite normal for our expectations to determine how we conduct ourselves. And if that's the case with lesser things like Christmas morning, which is just a man-made holiday, then it should most certainly be the case when it comes to the advent of Christ. In other words, more than anything else that we're looking forward to, the expectation of Christ's second coming should determine everything about us. And yet, if we're being completely honest with ourselves, we might admit that we hardly give it any thought at all. Instead, we're consumed with other things, Aren't we? Like our schooling, our jobs, our careers, with politics and elections, with social media. We obsess over other people and how they think of us. And we live in dread of not getting everything we want for ourselves. And while we do all of this, the one thing we're not thinking about is that Christ will come again. Perhaps one reason for this is that we don't read to the end of our Bibles often enough. Because if we did, I think we would be highly motivated to think and live differently. Because it's here in the very last passage of our Bibles that God gives his people five reasons for why they should live in a constant expectation of his return. First, God gives us assurance. Second, he gives us a promise. Third, he gives us a calling. Fourth, he gives us a reward. And lastly, he gives us A warning. And together, these five messages should be reasons why we live highly motivated lives to trust and obey Christ as we expectantly await his second coming. So now let's briefly examine what each of these five messages are more thoroughly from our passage. The first Message that God gives us is that we should live in constant expectation of Christ's return. The first message that we should live in constant expectation of Christ's return is found in verse 6, where God assures the reader of this book that everything it contains is trustworthy and true. God wants, us, God wants to leave us in his final message by telling us that everything that we've read up until this point is absolutely 110% trustworthy and true. And the reason the book of Revelation is trustworthy and true has everything to do with who it comes from. For its author is the Lord himself. In verse 6, we're told that the same God who inspired the writings of the other prophets in Scripture like Isaiah and Jeremiah, has also revealed to us the contents of this book. In other words, the God who inspired Isaiah's prophecy about the first coming of Emmanuel, in Isaiah chapter 7, for example, is the same God who now shows us the visions of Emmanuel's second coming in the book of Revelation. And it's precisely for the fact that the former prophecy was fulfilled in accordance with God's word that we should now eagerly expect Christ's return, which has also been shown to us in accordance with God's word. If the former is true, then the latter must be true. Because it comes from the same God. This means that our confidence in Christ's second advent ought to be rooted and grounded in our faith in his first advent. So then it ought to be impossible for us to contemplate Christ's birth, death, and resurrection without also at the same time being filled with the hope and the eager expectation of his return when he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Because here in this passage, we are given, once again, the assurance that God who promised his people that he would ascend a Savior to die for their sins is the same God who now promises us that that Savior will return as a king to rescue his people and conquer our enemies. And it's that assurance that should drive us to trust and obey Christ while we eagerly expect that He might come again at any moment. And that leads me to the second reason we should live in the great expectation of Christ's return. We should live in eager expectation of Christ's return because God promises that it will happen soon. In other words, God doesn't just promise that Christ is going to come someday far off in the future. He promises us that Christ will return soon. How many of us hear that and take it seriously? How many of us hear that and actually think that Christ might come tomorrow? But then you might say, well, we're 2,000 or so years later and counting, and Christ still hasn't returned. So, how exactly am I supposed to take this promise that Christ is going to come soon seriously? What are we to make of this promise? Well, first of all, in order to understand this promise accurately, we must seek to interpret we must seek to interpret it in light of what God has said elsewhere in scripture. And when we do that, one of the most important things that we learn is that ever since the time of Christ, humanity has actually been living in the end times. Ever since Christ first came humanity has been living in the end times for example in acts chapter 2 the apostle peter explains that the events at pentecost he explains the events at pentecost by quoting the prophet joel and says in the last days it shall be god declares that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh Likewise, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And then again in chapter 9, the author of Hebrews explains that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So then, what these passages are clearly telling us is that Christ's first advent has ushered in the final period of human history. Which means that for the past 2,000 years, the history of humanity has been on its final lap. Now, from our very finite and limited perspective... 2,000 years and counting may seem like a long time. But from God's eternal perspective, it is soon. And with each passing day, Christ's return is only getting closer and closer. Now, one of the important lessons that we learn from the book of Revelation is that as we get closer and closer to Christ's return, the situation here on earth is only going to grow increasingly worse. When the day of Christ gets closer, the situation on here is going to get worse. Humanity will become increasingly depraved. And as a result, the contrast between non-believers and believers is going to become increasingly apparent. And the consequence of this growing divide will be that Christians will face more and more opposition and even persecution as the time of Christ's return draws nearer. Now, the reason I mention this is to encourage us all to pause and to take a look around and survey the cultural landscape for a moment from your perspective does it seem that humanity is growing more depraved is sin becoming more grotesque and yet more acceptable in our society Is the world increasingly calling good evil and evil good? Is culture growing increasingly hostile to the church and the word of God? If any of the answers to these questions are yes, then I would say you have a good reason to expect that Christ's return might be soon. Because that's exactly the situation that Revelation warns us about. And when you couple that with the fact that 2,000 years have already passed since his first arrival, then I would say you have a very good reason to expect that Christ's return might be soon. So then the question for us becomes, how are we to live in light of this expectation? What are we to do Should we all become doomsayers? Should we all live in fear and start hoarding things like toilet paper and canned goods and water? Should we shut ourselves in and ignore the needs of the outside world? The answer is, of course not. If you've read the book of Revelation, then you know how the history books end. And if you've put your faith in Christ, then you already know that you're going to reign with him in glory for all eternity. So then why would you cling to this world in fear as if this present life is all there is? That's not how you are called to live. And this leads me to the third reason we should live in that great expectation of Christ's coming. The third reason we should live in expectation of Christ's return is that God calls us to do, to do that. And he calls us to live in this expectation by calling us to practice faithful obedience in accordance with his word. For example, in verse 7, God tells, God tells us, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book.'" Now, that same thing was uttered at the very beginning of Revelation. Way back in chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle John, God speaks through the Apostle John, saying, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, the fact that God tells us to keep what is written in this book, both at the beginning and at the end, means that God wants to call our attention to something. And what we must understand about what God is saying here when he calls us to keep his word is that he is calling us to take his words to heart and to obediently live them out in the course of our day-to-day lives. It's not just enough for us to hear the words read. We must apply them to our lives and live by them. That's what it means to keep His Word. To keep God's Word means to live in submissive obedience to it. And we are to do so in the great expectation that Christ might return at any moment. But what exactly does this obedience look like, he might ask. Now based on our passage alone, the answer to that question might not seem so obvious. But nevertheless, I believe our passage does in fact explain what obedience looks like. In verse 14, for example, God says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, if you have a good memory or a good cross-reference system in your Bible, you might know that this is a reference to chapter 7, verse 14, where the angel explains to the apostle John that the people of God are those who have washed their robes and made them white, In the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the people of God are those who have cleansed themselves of all unrighteousness by putting their trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to wash your robes. This means that if you want to keep God's word, If you want to be obedient to God's word, then you must do likewise. God is calling us to keep his word by cleansing ourselves of unrighteousness, by putting our faith in his Son. You must actively put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what it means to keep God's word. But that's not all there is to it. Once we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, we must continue to bear His image. Which is why verse 11, 11, for example, says, Let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. That means that as new creatures made in Christ... We must continue to do the good works which God has prepared for us. Just because Christ is coming soon doesn't mean we can slack off. It doesn't, instead, we should work even harder to be more like Christ and to do the work that he's given us. We must busy ourselves with living out and sharing the gospel in both word and deed while calling unbelievers to repentance and warning them of the judgment to come. If we want to be like Christ, we must do what Christ did. And that was Christ's ministry. To call sinners to repentance and to share with them the gospel. As Christians and as Christians living in expectation of Christ's return, this should be our mission. As men and women of God, this is what our lives should be all about. And yes, it might it might make us look crazy. It might offend people. And it might make our lives really difficult. But here's what we know for certain Christ is worth it. In verse 13, we are told that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Which means that He is sovereign over human history. And not only is He sovereign over human history, but He's sovereign over all the little details of our lives. Which means that nothing can happen to us that is not part of his plan for our ultimate good and salvation. And what's more is that we are told by Christ himself that he is also the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Which means that he is the messianic king who rescues his people and gives them rest by destroying their enemies. Therefore, we should not be timid or fearful of proclaiming Christ's gospel. Instead, we should join our voices with that of the Holy Spirit and of the church and invite all those who are thirsty for the waters of life to come and partake Of Christ and all his benefits. This now leads me to the fourth message that God gives us and the fourth reason we should live in expectation of Christ's return. We should live in eager expectation of Christ's return because God guarantees to reward each one of us according to our deeds. To those who are faithful and keeping God's word, he promises to reward us with free entrance into his holy city and the right to partake in the tree of life. What that means is that the faithful will be rewarded with salvation, salvation from sin and death, and they will be given the right to dwell in God's holy presence for all eternity. The unfaithful, however, will not be so fortunate. Those who do not keep God's word, who refuse to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who refuse to respond to God's invitation to come to the water of life, will be rewarded with judgment and condemnation. According to verse 15, they will be cast aside with the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And together they will be on the outside of God's city, barred from access to the tree of life. This is a place of eternal suffering, which elsewhere in Revelation is described as the lake of fire. And in that place, Jesus tells us that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in light of what's at stake, eternal life and eternal suffering— we would all do well to heed the fifth and final reason for why we should eagerly expect Christ's return. And that's the warning that Christ himself gives us at the very end of this passage. In verse 18, Christ says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, as a kid, I remember joking around with my friends about this passage, daring each other. To write something in the back of our Bibles like we were adding to it, or daring each other to take white out to a verse to see what would happen. Foolish, I know. Uh, But now, hopefully, you're all a little smarter than my 10 year old self. And you already realize that that's not what Jesus has in mind here. When Jesus gives us this warning, He's not threatening scribes with eternal punishment if they should not copy down the book of revelation perfectly. Right? No scribe in the history of humanity who's copied this book has not suffered has hasn't suffered the 10 plagues uh, just because they got a word wrong. That's not what's happened and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, Jesus here is referring to anyone to anyone who might be tempted to deliberately misinterpret or distort his words in order to justify their own sinful lifestyle and idolatry. In other words, this warning applies to any of us who might be tempted to say this book of Revelation doesn't really apply to me. I don't get it. It's weird. I don't need to heed its warnings or take what it says seriously. It applies to uh, those of us who say, I can live and do what I want, because I know I will always have time later to get right with God. Or, it's okay if I commit this or that sin, if I cheat on this test, if I... mad at this person or if I have sex with that person because I know God will forgive me. But such an attitude fails to appreciate the sense of urgency in which the book of Revelation calls us to live. It fails to appreciate that God is going to return soon. And it fails to take God's commands to repent and to live righteously seriously as a result it makes a mockery of the word of god by twisting and distorting what it says and guess what i'm all i'm pretty confident in saying that i'm willing that uh, all of us here this evening are guilty of doing this exact same thing who here amongst us has not ignored or misinterpreted God's word in order to justify sinful behavior at some point in their lives. That's all of us. At least if you're being honest with yourself, it's all of us. After all, there's a reason why this message is written to the seven churches, to God's people. This warning is not addressed to unbelievers. It's addressed to the people of God. Which means that this warning applies to us. Which means that we're guilty of this warning. Of doing the things that Christ warns us about. Which means that none of us on our own are worthy of dwelling with God for all eternity or partaking in the tree of life. But fortunately for us, no sin is too great for God's forgiveness. And fortunately for us, Christ has not yet returned. Which means that the time to repent is now because Christ is coming soon. And we should expect that Christ will come soon. And in light of that expectation, we should live with a renewed sense of urgency to trust and obey Christ to trust in his sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins and in that forgiveness of sins be motivated to live obediently for him and for his glory. That's what we are called to do. And that is how God wants to leave us in the In his written word. That's what he leaves us with. He leaves us with an assurance that this book is his word. He leaves us with a promise that he is going to come again soon. He leaves us with a calling to trust in his son for the forgiveness of your sins. And to pick up your cross and follow him in obedience. And he leaves us with a promise of reward. That those who are faithful in keeping his word will inherit eternal life. And those who are unfaithful in keeping his word will have the reward of eternal condemnation. And then he leaves us and imparts us with a warning. A warning to take this book seriously. To not misinterpret it. To not distort it. Not to wiggle around the passages that we don't like. But we are called to confront ourselves with the word of God and to bow to it. And to submit to it. And to keep it. That is our calling. And we are to do all of that in expectation that Christ will return soon. And I pray. I pray for myself and I pray for all of you that this expectation would be the thing That changes how we live. That makes us more passionate for the gospel. That makes us more passionate for the unbelieving sinner. That it makes us more passionate about being faithful husbands and wives. That it makes us more passionate about being obedient and faithful children. Christ is going to return. And we must be found faithful. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would forgive your people, forgive me, Lord, for not always taking your word seriously. For not treating it with the reverence that it deserves. For treating it lightly. As if it was optional. As if that I was my own authority. Lord, forgive me. And have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, would you forgive your people and would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we might live in an eager expectation of your arrival I pray the thought of your coming again would be our hope and our joy I pray that it would be the thing that we long for and I pray that it would be the thing that motivates us to trust and obey your word and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that your coming would be the thing that motivates us, Lord, to share the gospel with the unbelieving sinner. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring us into into submission to your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to keep your Word and to live by it and not just to treat it as if it's something that we hear or listen to on Sunday mornings. But I pray that it would be the thing that controls our life, that it controls every aspect of our being, and that it's the thing that provides our life with meaning and purpose. Lord, as we strive to faithfully keep your word, as we strive to be found faithful, Lord, we, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray that you would come soon in keeping with your promise and that you would rescue your people and that you would dwell with us once again. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.